Welcome to Straight Talk with NDFE. This is your host, Emery Melhoff. And today I'm sitting here with Pete Hannibut. Pete Hannibut is the public policy director for NDFB. And we're going to visit with Pete and get to know him a little bit better. Hi, Pete. Hello. Pleasure well, to be here. First off, let's talk about your name. What does Hannibut mean? <laughs> it is an odd German name, I, I admit. And uh, whether it's spelled the same way it was when they left Germany or not is still up for debate, whether there was an extra E on the end. But, uh, you know, the the... Uh, what do they call it? The etymology of the word, I think, is something to do with rooster and fish. Uh, so it's an odd name. And my poor mother went from uh, a name that meant angel village uh, in German to a name that meant rooster fish in German. And so she didn't get a very good deal in marriage for that for that spelling. Uh, well, I've had the pleasure to work with Pete for the last couple of years um, lobbying for NDFB policy at the North Dakota legislature. And I've really enjoyed my time with Pete. And Pete has had quite the past and experience with Farm Bureau, not just North Dakota, but uh, also Indiana. And so we're going to visit a little bit today about his time in Indiana and his connection to agriculture. So Pete, why don't you just go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about what your connection with agriculture was and how you found yourself working for Farm Bureau? Well, um, you know, I grew up on a uh, small hobby farm. Uh, my dad was the county extension agent. My mom was a school teacher, and we had everything for animals. My dad's hobby was horses, but we also had uh, Angus commercial cattle, and we had Chester White hogs. That was a family, three generations, four generations in the family was Chester White hogs. And uh, that uh, kept us busy. Uh, when dad retired from extension, he uh, started doing uh, custom hay business, and so we baled an awful lot of hay, and it was always focused on small square bales for people that were either horse people or racehorse people, so the quality of the hay had to be very high, and uh, I got to learn that business quite a little bit through high school and college in that uh, it was just always uh, the thing about uh, the quality of the hay for that specific market and even the weight of the bales for those people that were handling them. So it was uh, an interesting experience, and, and those are some of my ties to agriculture. Never had chickens, never had too much with sheep, but uh, we also had friends that were in the dairy business. So I was around dairy, around beef, around horses, and around hogs a lot as a young man. How did you get in contact with Farm Bureau? Well, it's an interesting thing. When I was in college, I did an internship, and then I worked for the Republican House of Representatives in Indiana. And so one of my college classes uh, was about ag policy, and it got me interested in that. And, you know, like in every other state except just a few, uh, the only public policy influencing general farm organization was the Farm Bureau. And, uh, you know, we had been a multi-generational Farm Bureau family. My grandfather and my dad had all been involved with Farm Bureau. I, I grew up going to those meetings and everything, but I uh, never thought of it as something uh, as a career of uh, me working for Farm Bureau. But as I got closer to graduation and my experience with working at the Capitol in Indianapolis and the ag policy type things that I was interested in, it seemed like a natural fit for me. And so it was the first uh, job that I really applied for out of college and uh, first job that I accepted out of college. I started working for Indiana Farm Bureau as a field representative in the northwest corner of the state. And uh, before too long, they moved me into the state office to do uh, political education, uh, pack things, candidate surfacing, candidate support. And then I, in that role, I did lobbying at the state house and the national level as well. So you jumped right into representing farmers in Indiana. And then what, what on earth 
uh, seduced you to the frozen tundra of North Dakota? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, Indiana has become a lot more of an eastern state. A lot of places east of the Mississippi are less rural all the time, and it's disappointing, but that's just the nature of our American experience, uh, the, the population changes and all that. And while Indiana is still a great agricultural state, it's the smallest state uh, west of the Alleghenies, and yet it's near the top in a lot of production, corn, soybeans, hogs, poultry, both uh, chickens and, and turkeys, and uh, it's still a pretty good beef state. It's a, a large dairy state. So there is a lot of agriculture in, in a, a small postage stamp of Indiana compared to Illinois and Iowa and some of the other Midwestern states. But it is becoming increasingly more driven by the bigger cities. And so uh, I tell people the legislature there is controlled by attorneys from Indianapolis, from uh, Fort Wayne, from the bigger cities within the state. And it's very frustrating that we do not have legislators that are tied to agriculture. It made the job frustrating sometimes because these aren't people that are just a generation off the farm. They may be three generations off the farm. And while it's great if they trust the Farm Bureau to tell them everything they need to know about agriculture, they also have a lot of competing interests and don't always think about what from farm to table really means for people and how they should uh, have some reverence and respect for the folks who are actually raising their food and not just look for ways to drive them out of business. So there was an opportunity that presented itself to come to North Dakota, and I was happy to be able to head this way to return to a more rural state, a state uh, where people are more closely connected to agriculture and uh, could not be happier with my decision. And the chance for Diane and I to raise our boys in a rural town, in a rural state, so they have all of that experience that I had as a child and that Diane had as a child, too, in a small farming community. Um, it was a return to our roots and uh, was a really good choice for us to do to raise our kids in this kind of setting. And both my boys have said they'll they'll not return to Indiana, even if that's our, our heritage. They're staying North Dakotans, and I am as well. That's awesome. So, uh, Pete, how many years have you been representing producers? Yeah, I've uh, I've been in the Farm Bureau Network for nearly 30 years. Okay. Um, when I worked at the Capitol for legislators in Indianapolis, I worked for the caucus chair. He happened to be a farmer. And so I've been involved with the agricultural side of public policy from college on. And so from about uh, the age of 20, 21 on, uh, I've been involved in the public policy realm, looking out for the needs of agriculture. With the Farm Bureau Network, you know, could, should I include my, my volunteer years? Uh, I wasn't on the State Young Farmer Committee or anything like that in Indiana, but I was involved with Farm Bureau uh, through my parents. And so I've been involved with Farm Bureau all my life, but I've been professionally involved with Farm Bureau for nearly 30 years as something to do with a staff role in influencing public policy at the local state or national level. Pete, one of the things that I've seen you do that you're really good at is coming across as non-threatening to our legislators, yet and telling stories and, and putting people at ease, really, so that you can communicate with them about the needs of agriculture and um, policy changes that are helpful for producers. What would you say just to people who are interested in talking to their legislators, how would you recommend going about it in a, in a way that communicates what their needs are and yet comes across the way that the way that we want it to? Well, I would say we're very, very fortunate in North Dakota that we still have a citizen legislature. That is 
first and foremost. The citizen legislature here is made up of people who actually have jobs at home, who have their own careers, have their own lives at home. They're not full-time legislators. They don't uh, think about the politics and the policy, and sometimes the politics gets ahead of the policies. They don't think about those things 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year round, as legislators honestly do in states where they have a full-time, every-year legislative session. And so we're really blessed in that regard. So uh, since we have a citizen legislature, it is really easy for the citizens to approach their legislators on any number of topics. What I think people sometimes miss the boat on is they feel like the uh, elected officials are more in the know or maybe uh, don't have the time for them. But in a state like ours where we have a true citizen legislature, the citizens are the experts on all the issues. And this legislature recognizes that. And so there are not very many legislators that know a whole lot about the dairy industry at this stage. And so if you're a dairy farmer, you are the expert that knows everything about that business that legislators may not. And so it's very easy for you to pick up the phone and call your state rep or your state senator and say, you know, this is important to me and here's how it impacts me. And so I think it's it's easier for folks to do here, but even at that, I don't think folks take advantage of it as often as they should. It's the simplest thing in the world to come to the legislature. We have an open process. You can meet with legislators before uh, and after committee hearings and before and after floor sessions and express to them why various issues are important to you and what it means for your bottom line out in the countryside. And we have gracious legislators who will actually listen, take the time to listen, uh, spend time with the citizens and, and the electorate and find out what is really important in the countryside. We can help facilitate that, but once we put you together with your legislator, it's uh, up to you to, to take the bull by the horns and talk about it. But there's no need for you to be concerned or to have any apprehension about it. It's just like talking to a neighbor. In many cases, your legislator is your neighbor, but it's just like talking to a neighbor or a friend that you uh, don't have as close a relationship with uh, when you first start those uh, conversations with legislators. But right now we're going through our annual meeting process, and of course legislators attend those meetings a lot. And uh, some of those legislators have represented certain counties for years and years and years within their districts. Uh, and so I think it's it's great that we have county Farm Bureau presidents, county active Farm Bureau members in counties that are on a first name basis with their legislators and they can uh, talk to them about any issue under the sun. And I've seen that several days in the last uh, week. We've had <laughs> annual meetings and I've been to those meetings where they've had those discussions and you see it all the time. Farmers and legislators being on a first name basis, even if they don't live in the same county. Uh, they've known each other for such a long time through their Farm Bureau activity that it's great to see how our citizens can interact with their elected officials. So in 30 plus years of connecting public policy with agriculture, so telling people in the public policy spectrum, this is what agriculture is, this is how it is important to the state, etc. something that you have done very effectively here in North Dakota. Um, what would you say to our producers who are listening, who are interested in either getting involved in public policy or how do they connect and how do we as producers get in the door and tell our story? Uh, in my active life, adult life, things have certainly changed in agriculture and uh, Obviously, the economy of scales has has changed things a little bit for the, I'll just say, 
the rural parts of America. You know, when I was a young lad, uh, I don't know what the numbers would have been, but a farmer nowadays feeds hundreds of people that are off farm. And obviously that has increased more and more as I've gotten older. Back in the day, I would suspect that it wasn't nearly as high as it is now, uh, maybe not twice as much, but I can certainly see from my grandfather's era in yields to what it is now on that same farmstead. You know, the yields have well more than doubled, mm-hmm. obviously. And so uh, those changes within agriculture and the Green Revolution uh, have changed the nature of ag policy. And so we have less and less stakeholders who are tied to the land, but we, as as those stakeholders and producers, need to stay together more now than ever. It's the old Benjamin Franklin thing. If we don't hang together, we'll certainly hang separately. And so we need a unified voice to speak out for the concerns of agriculture all across this country, whether you're a lobster person in Maine or the pineapple person in Hawaii, Farm Bureau with uh, affiliations in every state and 6 million members really lend a lot to producers all over that we are connected. We are still going to be the general farm organization that has conservative values that says we need less government, we need less taxes, we need less regulation. Let us do what we do best and try not to interfere with our business model. And unfortunately, you know, now we're being assaulted uh, by our federal government in those regards, and we have to stay unified and stay tough and, and look out for all of agriculture in one group. It's never been more important that we stay together in a general farm organization to look out for one another. So what about the people that are coming into agriculture for the first time? Uh, mm-hmm. We have more and more people, particularly in the larger states like Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, et cetera. Um, but even in North Dakota, young people that are becoming more interested in producing food for themselves and doing direct marketing, whether it be at a sure. farmer's market or, or selling to their neighbor or selling selling online. What would you say to those young producers that are, that are coming on for the first time? Well, the, the foodie movement, I guess I'll call it that in general, of, <laughs> of people being more connected to where their food comes from has certainly transformed general agriculture in America. No denying that. The public feels more comforted in knowing exactly where their food comes from. Uh, it has nothing to do with wholesomeness of the food itself. It has to do with the perception of knowing where your food comes from. That has good and bad sides to it. You know, the good side of, of it is obviously that that the consumer feels connected to their food producers, and that's great for us. But we also need to be careful that we don't throw our brethren under the bus and saying that my food is more wholesome than your food because you know where my food is raised versus having that disconnect for where your food is raised. We have the, the safest, uh, most economical food supply in the world, regardless of the source in North America and in the United States. Uh, so I hope that it's not a division between agriculturalists with the folks who are fully engaged in the foodie movement to, to uh, be local with all their food. Because realistically, you know, we have a big country. We can't be local with everything. We can't have local lobster farmers. We can't have local whatever, you know, and, and neither can those people, you know, just to use Maine as an example. They have blueberries, they have potatoes, they have lobster farmers, but they don't have corn, soybeans, and some of the things that we have in our part of the Midwest. They can't raise or don't raise uh, canola, flax, sunflowers, things like that. And so not everything can be local all the time. And I hope that that's not a way for our enemies to divide up the unified agricultural experience and and, uh, use one half against the other just uh, for their own purposes. I hope that 
agriculture in general as a unifier because we're all in this boat together versus something that's divisive just for a marketing ploy. Mm-hmm. And one thing I would say is is that adding small farms, etc., um, does increase the population numbers of people that are producing. And so one of the advantages that that you might get is more people in the rural areas. Sure. So one just- of the beauties of Farm Bureau is that we represent everyone. We represent. Mm-hmm. The smallest organic rooftop farmer, uh, and we also represent the largest family farm in America, you know. And so there's a lot of diversification within Farm Bureau. We represent them all, regardless of commodity, regardless of size, regardless of their business model. And so that's uh, the great niche that Farm Bureau has. Uh, But it is also sometimes difficult for us to make sure that we represent everyone equitably because uh, sometimes the squeaky wheel gets the attention and uh, we need to make sure that we look out for everyone in Farm Bureau, not just one specific group versus another. Talking to young producers here, what areas of growth and opportunity do you see on the horizon for people that are interested in diversifying? We touched on local food, so obviously people in the livestock industry or or other industries selling direct to the consumer. But what other areas do you see, particularly in North Dakota, for, for growth and development? It's been great that this return to knowing uh, where your food comes from movement has put the actual consumer in the city in contact with their direct producer. That's all wonderful, but not everyone can take it straight from the farm gate to their table. There is some processing involved sometimes, and I see that as a growth area that's emerging just for livestock processing. There's a need for more local processors. But uh, there's probably going to emerge uh, some processing that has nothing to do with uh, livestock. There'll be some processing that is directly connected to all the other things within the food chain. And so that's a growth area and it's agriculture. It's the, you hate to say middleman, but it's the person between the farm gate and the consumer in some cases because things do have to be processed sometimes. So that's a growth area. There's a big void to be filled, I believe, with certain commodities. The foodie movement is has uh, moved toward livestock and maybe moved toward vegetables, but there's an awful lot of other things that we consume and eat that don't fall into those two categories. And so we'll probably see some growth there. I can imagine there was a time in North Dakota where a lot of fruit things were grown here and everybody had an orchard and things like that, and we have none of that now. Hmm. Uh, This is also a place where we have no Christmas trees just for an an oddity (laughs) to pick out. You know, it takes them a while to grow up here, where in other parts of the country, there are those things. There are Christmas tree farms that also have a pumpkin patch and other things that make it more agritourism. And we don't have as much of that here as there are in other states. Some of it is our climate, but some of it is just uh, the cultural history of things. And so uh, there'll be expansion in a lot of different fields. And one thing about America is we're, we're the great Petri dish and that you can see what folks are doing in other states and replicate it here. And I expect we'll see some expansion in a lot of directions. So, Pete, if I were to come to you today and say, okay, Pete, I have a few hundred acres that I grow crops on and I also have livestock. I feed 100 cows and I complement that with growing growing feed for them. I put up hay. And I told you, Pete, I, I really want to diversify. I really want to take advantage of of a new market here. What would you tell me? What areas would you see? This, this is a really good opportunity for you. Boy, the sky's the limit. Uh, it can be almost anything. The agritourism angle uh, is something that we don't see too much of in North Dakota. That's great. Uh, but there's also a, a lot of things that we just don't think about here. There are 
I know of direct beef to consumer operations. I know a few direct hog to producer operations, but that doesn't fit every commodity. And so there's an awful lot of opportunity in each commodity segment, which is hundreds, uh, that someone could jump in and fill that niche, whether you're the uh, the guy from Maryland Farm Bureau that has the goat soap business, which is something I would have never thought of. But I, or maybe it's Delaware. I may be mistaken in which state. But there's somebody out on the East Coast that does that kind of thing. And it's a direct consumer thing, but it's goat milk soap type product. But it's certainly something that uh, they're hitting a niche with out there. And more and more of those things will come here. You also see uh, some changes just within the industry of, you know, different states with their regulations driving people away. And so more ag producers will probably come to the plain states and at least the central part of the country to do what they're doing in what is now their home state. Uh, you know, a number of years ago, dairies were driven out of California and poultry has been driven out of California because of some of their regulatory stance on things. And so we will probably be the benefiters of that uh, because we will enjoy some of this infusion of other folks from other parts of the country. Yeah, touching on dairy and and even hogs as as California and other states have have increased their regulations. Those things still need to be produced. We still need milk. We still need pork. And North Dakota is an attractive place to grow that. And as a young producer who who might be looking for some diversification opportunities, there may be an advantage to looking at what is what does it look like to produce hogs or what does it look like to have a dairy and uh obviously farm bureau has done a lot in the area of both of those things to streamline the process for people to to develop that on their operations farm bureau can be the great network that stitches all these folks together and uh, that's one of the things we have a lot of experience in across the country and so we can be the it's not a network, it's quilt work. You know, We're stitching all this together and uh, we can be that organization that helps folks with those kinds of things when they want to go a different direction than maybe their grandfather was going and, and look for different uh, markets and niches that, that we can fill going forward to make ourselves more profitable. Profitability is still very important and, and unfortunately there are places in the world where profitability is the second or third thing on the list versus uh, farming for the government. We hope that it's still going to be a, a capitalist, profitable uh, market in North America for the foreseeable future. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Pete, for visiting with me today. Always a pleasure to chat and uh, hope you have a good day. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking. Thank you for listening to Straight Talk with NDFB. This is your host, Emery Melhoff, and we are wrapping up the end of season two, our summer season of Straight Talk. And we're looking in the middle of soybean harvest here and finishing up our county annual meetings for North Dakota Farm Bureau. And uh, we're going to take a few weeks break here, and then we're going to be coming back in a few weeks with season three. And we're going to have exciting new guests to talk about how to be profitable on our operations, how to work with family, and some exciting surprises. So be on the lookout for the new release of Straight Talk. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you